Welcome to RAQA Today, the podcast that puts the fun back in quality, compliance, and regulatory affairs. Here's your host, Michelle Lott. So we're going to talk about the aftermath of MDR today. We're going to talk about the stories I've gathered along the way of um, creating this presentation. This first example I akin to Allison uh, work Wonderland. And this is a company that makes wound chains. They have been in business for over 40 years with the same product that's essentially unchanged the whole time. These are silicone tubes with holes bored in the end. That's it. It's about as simple of a manufacturing process from an inert material with well-known properties as you can get. The problem is that they're placed in the interstitial space and the metastasium. So let's compare and contrast that to how these are regulated in the US versus the EU. There are two different product codes that vary slightly by indication that these products can fall under in the US. Either way, whether it's class two or class one, it's 510K exempt um, and have been for quite some time. So under the MDD classification, these were also a 2A. They were for short-term use, um, not more than 30 days. They met all of the criteria because they were not indicated for contact, direct contact with the central nervous system, which was the one caveat under the MDD. But under the MDR, they added the magic phrase, the heart or central circulatory system, in addition to the central nervous system. And all of a sudden, these simple low-risk products are a class three. Well, this isn't like pulling a rabbit out of a hat. The risk classification of these products didn't just magically change. And the adding this level of technical documentation and complexity and need for trial data isn't going to make these, pro- these low-risk products any safer. And there are many rules that change that uh, have affected products in this way. And again, it's not that the products are magically more risky or even have a a history of adverse events. So in this next example, um, I call this the heavyweight championship. The person put their submission in on August 10th of 2020. So round one, they got back August 6th of 2020 with 37 general queries that all contain multiple subpoints. These were detailed in a 55 page complicated form to capture the responses. On February 12th of 21, 28 of the 37 were closed. It had nine new follow-on queries and a brand new equivalence form to fill out on top of that other uh, query form that they had to do because the notified body had been developing and refining its processes uh, based off the feedback from the competent authority. For round three, they got back in June of uh, June 10th. The notified body had uh, lost the first expert or they had been reassigned. They brought in a new expert to assess just the V&V testing. And this gave 20 more follow-on queries on top of the ones that had already been asked because the new reviewer pretty much started from scratch in the review instead of focusing on what did it take to close the initial reviewer's queries. The query response page is now up to 150 pages, and the notified body at this point still hadn't even started the sterilization and biocompatibility review, 
So the company didn't even have an idea how much longer the process was going to take or how many more queries they were going to get. So the knockout came August of 21. The company decided that after a six-figure fee from the notified body to review the product thus far, that they were going to just withdraw their submission, redesign, and retest it to meet, quote, state of the art. Because one sticking point on some of their VND testing was for a particular performance standard where there was a clause because of the, the unique application for their product, it didn't really apply. So they didn't fully comply technically with the standard, even though that portion of the standard didn't apply. The notified body told them it's way too hard for us to analyze your risk-based argument just meet the standards, period. So victory comes with a price for um, the, the people who have made it th through successfully. They have two applications in play. One, they started very early on. It took a full year for the notified body to review the file and make a decision to issue the cert. And it took another six months for the certificate to make it through the issuance process between the notified bodies and the competent authorities. They have a second submission that's been in review for six months. They felt like the clinical portion of this was sticky so that they chose the performance route. And 10 months in now, they still don't have the sterilization or biocompatibility review. It hasn't even started. And the not notified body won't even give them a ballpark or a time frame that they think that they could receive their initial queries in this area. This particular group did uh, speaks German as their native language, as does their notified body. They said that this helped a lot, both from a, a language and a translation issue, but also from a cultural perspective. They were able to, well, the official language of all the audits and written communication, formal written communication is in English. They could have calls and emails actually in German so that they really understood the intent better of what the, the English was. Also, this was done on site. So the, the review happened and the people could sit side by side with the, the auditors and explain the documents in real time. Next, we come to what I liken to the, the Game of Thrones because CER is now king of the entire process to get a CE mark. This endeavor is going to take 200 to 300 hours. It is going to easily be a five to six figure cost of getting your product to market alone for just the, the authorship of the CER and the literature. It is an exercise, if anything, redundancy. Between your clinical evaluation protocol and your report, there are 53 repeated items. Between your post-market clinical follow-up plan and your CEP, CER, there is five repeated entire subsections. And in between your technical documentation as a whole and your CEP and CER, there are 14 repeated subsections. So the CER now takes primacy over all the individual sub-assessments and it can no longer point to these other areas in your documentation because it has become the cornerstone of the technical documentation rather than the other way around under MDD. And the problem is, is that this is the most subject subjective part of it. We talked earlier about how the clinical reviewers, it takes 18 to 24 months 
to train a clinical reviewer. And a lot of times they don't even think that they need to understand the regulations. And so that that removes a, not having the regulatory construct properly understood, removes the level of objectivity and criteria that's supposed to be in place and is relying more on that clinical reviewer's opinion. So in the CER centric system, the easiest CER, CERs to write are the ones with the most clinical evidence. And the ones with the most clinical evidence are either the ones with the higher classification device that were also a class three underneath the MDD that will have a long history of, of being um, on the market and also have registry data or extremely novel devices that are going to have a lot of supporting literature and where the companies know right up front they're going to need a lot of trial data. The problem is going to be for low, low risk or boring products that nobody's going to ever publish an article about or you know, reinvent because some of them are so common commoditized now, is it paradoxically is going to be more difficult to write and rationalize these CERs. So you need to expect the unexpected in the CER process. This first example I called, do you have the tiger by the tail? It was um, a clinical reviewer who asked, well, I don't see in your, your documentation, your risk documentation, where you discussed damage to the sciatic nerve if this product was to be used in the spine. Well, the product was intended for access to long bones specifically, it was not intended for use in the spine, and they couldn't find any human citations for use in the spine in clinical practice. Where this is used is in veterinary practice in cats. And so they had to go back to the clinical reviewer and say, why did you think that something that you would do on a tiger is relevant to the discussion here? In a similar level of ridiculousness, uh, there is a, a element of the GSPR item 14.1 that talks about needing to evaluate the whole combination of, of devices as they interact. And the reviewer said, well, you can reasonably expect that when a person uses your device that they're gonna have gloves on. And I don't see where you discuss the risk of a latex allergy to both the clinician and the patient um, and why doesn't your labeling include a warning about using latex surgical gloves as part of the combination of the system? I, I pushed back on this reviewer. I said, do you mean to tell me that you think every single device that goes into Europe under MDR, because you know every device is going to be used with gloves, needs a, all those hundreds of thousands of labeling need to be adjusted with clinical practice recommendations about latex gloves? And he said, yes. So they ended up, they, they pushed back and, and he eventually um, retracted his position to just the devices that get connected up and downstream of the devices, which is a much more logical position. So with that said, you know, these are just some of the most extreme examples of the people I talked to, but, but even the most seasoned regulatory professionals can't prepare their company for the types of things that are going to come back and be asked and challenged with in their clinical review. So what to expect from the CECP or the expert panels, there will be initial screening uh, committee. There are 12 panels that the products get designated into where they've all 
recruited clinicians and experts. These positions last for three years. The first opinion came out of this process June of this past year. The problem is, is it was it was published. It called out the company name. It called out the notified body name. And it was scathing in terms of the expectations for clinical data. But then, you know, the whole point of the CECP and posting these things on the European website was for transparency. And shortly after publishing it, the uh, European Commission pulled it back and nobody really understands why did they take, remove their opinion from the, the website? And so if you could get your hand on a copy of a PDF of these, it's extremely informative to the, the extent that clinical data is being held, held to. So what are our lessons learned? What, what can you do and what should you not do? So hope certainly isn't a re regulatory strategy, but for some manufacturers right now, denial is. So legacy devices, if you have a CE mark under MDD, start now, start yesterday. If you are having trouble uh, lighting a fire underneath your management, have them watch this webinar or one of my other shorter webinars. This is a crisis situation if you want to maintain your certificates by 2024. Don't test the waters by submitting documentation that just embraces the kind of spirit of MDR, but you know already there has some technical gaps, some maybe out-of-date testing, and uh, the notified bodies are not exhibiting any kind of leniency here. And they're only going to give you three formal rounds of review before they will pull your, your file and say you're not ready. So swapping the ER checklist with a GSPR uh, checklist is not sufficient. You can't think in terms of minimum actions of of I can just swap this piece for that piece and this word for that word. This is totally new process. And if you have a portfolio of products, you need to transition all of your technical documentation before you submit for your certificate because you don't get if you do just one you don't get the luxury of picking and giving that one to the notified body as evidence that you have the know-how to transition your other nine. They all have to, all 10 of your files have to be compliant at one time. So what can you do? Read and prepare about the details. Take time to really understand that submission process and particularly how your notified body executes that submission process because it will vary notified body to notified body. The expectation on how to format your submission and format your responses will also vary notified body to notified body. And then it also may vary as you're going through rounds of review with your notified body as their processes change. <music>